All right, we should get started with the next uh, session. Uh, we have uh, Ross Levine and uh, Jonah Rubenstein. And uh, Ross, I guess, is going to present uh, on, and talk about um, finance and educational opportunity. Thanks. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, this paper's about uh, one basic question, but there are two motivations. And the two motivations uh, reflect the two co-authors, one who comes at it from more of a finance angle, myself, and one of it who comes at it from more of a labor angle, uh, Yona. So from the finance perspective, one might ask, how important are banks and bank regulation for shaping the educational opportunities of children? Many view banks, and especially bank regulation, as primarily protecting uh, the elite. Um, but a number of theories suggest that improvements in the functioning of the financial system, improvements in the, in the functioning of credit markets, can actually weaken the link between um, a child's family's uh, wealth or income and the education and educational opportunities um, available to, to that child. Um, similar motivation, but framed differently, would be from the labor perspective. Why is there such a strong link between parental income and a child's education? What accounts for this intergenerational transmission of educational outcomes? Um, and in particular, and this is gonna really be the, the, the question that we ask, is do credit constraints, um, and hence bank regulation, because that's what we're gonna examine, um, help explain these differences in educational opportunities for kids? So as you can see here, uh, simple, simply looking at what, are the, what is the relationship between income, family income, and the ultimate education of a kid, it's a fairly strong link that the below the median, children from below median family incomes get about 12.75 years of education, and those with above median family income get over 14 years of education. What accounts for that? So the literature has suggested two answers, and these two answers are not mutually exclusive. One is that the reason why lower income families tend to have children that ultimately attain lower le levels of educational attainment is that they can't afford it. Um, they, it's, it's all about an ability to pay. They can't afford it, they can't borrow, it's hard to borrow and have payment be contingent on the ultimate payoff to that education of the children. And hence from this environment, banks and bank credit policies, which might ease um, uh, certain types of constraints that affect a family may play a very large role in determining uh, educational opportunities. Another view, this view um, also has been associated with the theoretical work by Becker and others, and Heckman has uh, played a big role in, in advancing this empirically, is that it's less about the ability to pay and it's more about the ability to learn or the ability to benefit from that extra year of education. And from this perspective, income shape, shapes the home and community environment in which a child develops um, from the early years uh, of his or her life up until that individual is making a decision about whether to graduate from high school and go and work, or whether to graduate from college or go and work. Um, and from this perspective, educational choices may simply reflect, especially educational choices at big discrete moments like graduating from high school or graduating from college, um, these educational choices may primarily reflect 
this ability to learn and benefit, which has already been determined by the family environment, and hence credit market conditions when a kid is 16, 17 years old, just don't matter very much. And from this perspective, banks probably don't really play much of a role in shaping the educational contours uh, um, available to kids um, as, as they make high school and college decisions. So the Becker model captures this in a nice simple equation. So if you have schooling of an individual I, this is gonna be positively related to the ability A of this uh, individual minus R, which is like an interest rate or the credit constraints facing this individual, plus some theta I, which is basically the tastes associated with education, and then there would be a gamma, some sort of diminishing returns to education. And of course, empirically, there's a lot of problem in estimating the impact of credit constraints on schooling for a variety of reasons. And one of those reasons is that high-income families tend to have both more um, um, ability because of this, uh, especially when you get to the high school and college decisions, because of the home and community environment in which they are raised, and they probably face uh, lower credit constraints as well. So what you want is some shock to credit constraints that affects all families and all kids um, while holding the other things constant and see what impact did this change in credit constraints have on the educational choices of, of kids. The Becker's model also highlights um, an, a couple of other features. One is really um, a warning, and the other is sort of an insight that we are going to use in examining, um, uh, in looking to, the, looking to the data. The first one is that if we look at discrete choices, like high school and college, um, the impact of credit constraints on these uh, discrete choices are gonna depend importantly on the cognitive and non-cognitive traits of the kids. So what do we mean by that? What we mean by that is basically, um, if you have a super high ability kid, um, regardless of the family, this kid is probably going to graduate from high school. The family is gonna find it worthwhile to make sure that the resources are there to graduate from high school. And from those, in that type of an environment, small changes in interest rates are not gonna affect that educational margin. Although for lower income families in that situation, they might affect the college decision. So we're gonna look at these big breakpoints, high school and college, and see whether changes in credit constraints have a differential effect for lower and higher income families and for children of differing abilities in the same family. The other warning is that when we look at this empirically, we're gonna get what we think is probably a lower bound, and that's because credit constraints and the ability to learn are probably positively related in the sense that credit constraints might influence the ability to learn. So families um, that can borrow and live in a neighborhood more conducive to the cognitive and non-cognitive development of their children are both gonna be families that might face lower credit constraints and hence can borrow to live in those conditions. And those conditions are also gonna affect the ability of the children, which then will affect choices of schooling. So credit constraints might have a direct effect on the ability to ease financing problems and allow the kid to go to school. And it might have these indirect effects in that it will affect the ability of this kid to benefit from graduating from high school or college. So simply controlling for ability is gonna provide an underestimate of the effect of credit constraints because we'll only capture 
the effect on the ability to pay, not on the effect of credit constraints on the ability to learn. And we're going to try to pursue that in a different paper. Okay, so the, the literature obviously has examined this issue before. Almost all of the literature examines this through indirect methods. So it's not generally a direct estimate of credit constraints on schooling. Literature tries to very cleverly infer the relationship between schooling and credit constraints through um, indirect uh, methods. Empirical literature is on the whole, I think, fair to classify as inconclusive. And conceptually, there's a problem because what we want is some exogenous direct change in credit constraints on a wide assortment of families and then assess what happens to schooling in order to reduce the possibility that other factors are confounding the results which can emerge from these indirect methods. There's one particular direct paper that we sort of will build on. It's this paper by Card and Lemieux. And the nice thing there is that um, for, for us, in terms of making a contribution, is that there are two issues. One is our interest rates measured correctly in their paper, because they use one interest rate for the United States as a whole. But as we're going to discuss in a moment, credit conditions are actually, over the period in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, are really determined at a much more local level. And so simply using one interest rate loses some information. And the other is that they don't examine exogeneity. And this can be important because if you think that there's a change in economic conditions that increases output, you might ex there might be an increase in demand both for human capital and an increase in demand for physical capital. And hence, in trying to disentangle what's going on, we want just an exogenous change in credit conditions in order to see what happens to cooling de schooling decisions afterwards. So that's basically where we try to contribute. And we want to assess the impact of credit constraints on education by directly measuring credit constraints, which is primarily going to be um, by examining interest rates at a uh, state year level. And we're going to try to convince ourselves and you that we have a method for examining an exogenous change in, um, in credit constraints and these interest rates. Um, and what we're going to use is cross-state, cross-year um, variability in bank deregulation that took place over the horizon from the mid-1970s to the mid-1990s. This occurred in different years for different states. So there's lots of variability. And then for each child, we are going to examine whether that child was in a household that experienced this reduction in interest rates during his or her formative years, which we're going to define essentially right around the high school decision years. Okay, we can look at different, we can look at different mirrors, and we're going to do that in some of the analyses because what's crucial in terms of the theory is that the credit constraints hit this particular child at a time when he or she is making decisions about whether to continue in education or not. Um, and we're going to test this other prediction that I mentioned, which is that the impact of a change in credit constraints on family, the impact of a change on credit constraints um, might affect different children, with different, where different children mean children of different ability, in families facing different credit constraints differently. So I'll explain that more when we get to the um, empirical results. Okay. Okay, for credit constraints, what we're going to use primarily is a measure of the cost of credit. 
This measure of the cost of credit is called the effective interest rate, and it includes the amortization of the initial fees on loans along with the interest rate on, on a housing mortgage. So basically, we're going to try to get the effective rate on borrowing um, to purchase a home, which we're going to get at a... Um, um, we're going to get. We're going to aggregate this primarily at a state year level, and in some analyses, we'll show you this at a county level. We can also look, and we'll show you some information on the availability of credit, whether households are actually taking advantage and 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 borrowing to purchase a home. When we look at individuals, we're going to primarily look at the NLSY, the National Longitudinal Survey of Youths. And what this does is it surveys a bunch of individuals between the ages of 15 and 22 in 1979. And then it follows them through up until 2010. We're not going to use up until 2010, but follows them through 2010, 2012. I don't think the, the, the survey has stopped. One of the crucial things we're going to look at is that during the initial years of this survey, each of the children was given an AFQT test, an R Enforces Qualification Test, which we might, which is a test that tries to assess the learning ability of the child. And we're going to use that to distinguish among, fam among children, we're going to use that to distinguish them by ability. When we say ability, that's the definition of ability for these analyses. It's how they performed on this test. And we'll also use the current population survey in some analyses, the shortcoming of the current population survey is that it doesn't follow individuals through time, and the advantage is that it looks at a, a much broader selection of individuals. Okay. In terms of looking at this exogenous source of variation in interest rate, what changes interest rates in different years in different states, we're going to look at branch deregulation. Now, branch deregulation, there, there were restrictions on the ability of banks to branch within states for almost all of the 20th century until things started to change in the, uh, around 1975. Now, these regulations were put in place for a variety of reasons. You know, early on, it was to basically raise money through the sale of um, uh, banking licenses. And later, these regulations were maintained um, through lobbying efforts because the 30,000 or so odd banks that existed in the U.S. was not a reflection of competition. It was a reflection of regulatory protected local monopolies. So the banks were very, very willing to pay a lot of money through politicians um, in order to maintain these restrictions on competition. Why were these deregulations why were these regulations eliminated? eliminated? They were not eliminated because there was all of a sudden a realization that they were having an adverse effect on the economy. They were eliminated because a variety of technological changes that took place at a national level reduced the value to the bankers of essentially paying to keep these regulations. So, for example, it's nice to look at this in the context of a concrete example. We'll look at it in terms of an ATM machine. So, if I have a bank in one part of Maryland and Yona has a, a bank in a different part of Maryland, and I want to encringe on his territory, I might stick an ATM machine around his banks in order to collect, uh, collect deposits. Of course, the U.S. being the U.S., the first thing that Yona is going to do is going to sue me and basically claim that the ATM machine is effectively a branch. 
And this is what happened. And this went up through the court system until the Supreme Court essentially refused to overturn a lower court decision where the lower court decision came to the conclusion that the ATM machine was not a branch. So the ATM machine is not the only technological innovation. There were changes in tele telecommunications. There was the rise of money market mutual funds, better data processing. These technological innovations reduced the benefits of regulatory restrictions on the geographic expansion of banks. Okay, so there was never any regulation against a person in this part of a state borrowing from Yona in a different part of the state. The regulation was on the ability of Yona to establish a branch over here. And as the geographic advantage of having a, a, a branch over here diminished, Yona was willing to pay less to the politicians in order to keep those regulatory restrictions, and they began to weaken. And the timing of this, weaken, of this weakening differed by state, primarily reflecting in particular differences in population concentration. So you see deregulation going away first in perhaps a state like Rhode Island, and later in perhaps in a state like Montana. It's not perfect, but there's a nice paper by um, uh, Krosner and Strawn that examines the timing of deregulation based on these uh, types of, of geographic and, and population dispersion measures. Okay, the impact of this deregulation on the banking system has been examined by many people. It increased competition among banks, it reduced the profitability of banks, it reduced interest rates that banks um, were charging on their loans and actually increased interest rates that banks were giving uh, to depositors. Okay, so some things that we need for this to go, and we spend a little bit of time on in, in the paper, and my guess is the discussions might tell us we don't spend enough time or enough quality time on it, but for now I'll just sort of push forward and say that interest rates don't seem to predict the timing of deregulation, either the level of interest rates nor changes in the interest rates, and we definitely don't observe that, you know, reasons to believe that changes in education are what's triggering the timing of bank de deregulation across states. At the same time, we do see that these changes in bank deregulation did affect credit conditions in the state. So here what we have is we have just a very simple progression where we look at interest rates, we look at the years since a state deregulated. Remember, states are deregulating in different years. Um, we have a squared term just in case this relationship is not linear, and we include uh, dummy variables to control for state and year fixed effects. So controlling for year fixed effects, we are controlling for everything that's essentially going on in the country as a whole, and focusing only on things that are happening over time within each individual state. And what you observe is that following deregulation, there was a reduction in interest rates, um, and uh, you know this sort of um, um, confirms uh, work that was done by uh, Gerotny and, and Strawn in 1996. Okay, we can look also at, at the impact of deregulation on interest rates in different counties. Okay, where we can divide up counties between rich count counties, countries with higher than above median levels of income per capita and poor counties, countries with below um, median income. The issue here is that it's important for the, our study to say that deregulation had an impact on interest rates 
on interest rates facing low-income families and high-income families. Because the issue is then, given that there was this change in interest rates, given that there was a change in credit conditions for low- and high-income families, what types of decisions were made in terms of education? And again, what you observe is that uh, you see that there's a change in interest rates conditioning on many other factors, including the, perhaps their cross-county differences in the types of loans that are being made. But again, you see that there's this reduction in interest rates for um, all counties, regardless of whether it's a rich or a poor county. Okay. Then we turn and we kind of re and, and, and we look at home ownership. Are these changes in, in deregulation, do they actually translate into changes in behavior? And first we're going to look at this changes in behavior, not in the context of schooling, but just do they do families borrow more in order to purchase homes? And as you can see here that the answer is yes. After deregulation, there's an increase in home ownership. There's an increase in home ownership, especially in, um, among lower income families. Um, and this also kind of plays to something that I mentioned earlier, which is that changes in credit conditions might affect the home environment and hence the nature of the community in which a child grows which might affect that individual's ability. So this is something we want to pursue in, in, uh, kind of in, in, in a different paper. OK, so examine the impact and hopefully the validity of bank deregulation. Um, interest rates don't seem to predict it, but deregulation does seem to predict future changes in credit constraints. And we can use bank deregulation to sort of assess whether exogenous changes in interest rates influence education. So now let's turn to some of the education results. Okay, so this is a little bit, uh, a little bit messy, um, but let me sort of explain. So the dependent variable, what we're trying to explain here, is equal to one if the person did not graduate from high school. So this is like, did the person, is the person a high school dropout? And what we do is on the left, we divide between families where the child grew up in a family with below median income. It's not income per child. It's the income of the, um, it's the, it's a notion of family income, less than the median, and family income of uh, greater than income. Okay. Then in each of these categories, we sep separate between children within those families with below median AFQT scores, maybe below median ability, and children with above median AFQT scores. And then we do these analyses with um, using OLS and, and a probit. Um, shortcoming with this analysis is that these uh, probits are not, don't provide the marginal effect, and that makes it a little bit harder to interpret, and this is something we have to change in the, the next version. So if we look at sort of, if we look at the results, what you could see, for example, from column one, is, and there's some nonlinearity here, but if we use the OLS to get, in some sense, the estimate, we can use the probit to evaluate the significance. This is saying that deregulation, each year after deregulation, would cause a reduction in high school dropout rates of about three percentage points, where the average dropout rate in this category is about 27 percentage points. So that's quite a substantial drop in high school dropout rates. So this would be from like 27% dropout rates to 24% dropout rates for each year of deregulation, recognizing that there's some curvature, that the impact will diminish, um, will diminish over time. 
Also notice that this impact, this positive impact of bank deregulation on educational choices is happening only for lower income families. This is not surprising. If interest rates drop a little bit, it's not going to affect to a large degree whether my kids graduate from high school or not. Um, but for some families, that drop in interest rates may have a substantial impact on whether dropping out from high school is worthwhile econo economically or not worthwhile economically. What this is also suggesting is that the, the dropout rate doesn't, is not really affecting high school graduation rates for high ability kids and low income families. So this is allowing the below median individuals from low income families to graduate from high school, having no effect on the high income families and not having any effect on the high ability kids in lower income families. If we look at college, the impact is different. If we look at college, and here the, the, the differentiation that we draw is different. Again, we differentiate between low income families and high income families. And now when we look at AFQT score, because we're looking at college, which is a much uh, smaller proportion of the population, we look at individuals who have below the 25% level of AFQT scores of everybody who graduates from, high, from college. So we look at everybody who graduates from college, we look at their AFQT scores when they were teenagers, we take a cutoff at the 25% level and say if you're below that, fairly low ability, and if you're above the 75th percentile, you're a very high ability. And then what you observe here is that deregulation increases the ability of high ability kids from low income families to graduate from college. It has no effect on the high ability kids from high income families. They were already graduating from college, but it does increase the proportion of low ability kids from high income families to graduate from college as credit constraints ease. Okay, when we go to identification, what we do is the following, okay? What we want to do is compute the credit constraints facing each child, recognizing that the children in our analysis are not of the same ages so that a, credit a reduction in interest rates from bank deregulation that occurs in 1985 is going to affect some people in our sample who are 25 years old at that point and some people in our sample who are 18 years old at that point. And the, what we're arguing, what theory is sort of suggesting is that the reduction in interest rates when they're in their formative years in this 14 to 18 year time frame, that's what's going to impact their decisions where if the changes in interest rates are when they're 25 years old, that's probably not going to affect the types of educational decisions that they make. And this is exactly what we find. So there's, there's, um, there's two things to observe from this. Let me first talk about the results and then I'll go back to the OLS. So put away column one for a second. What the rest of the columns are sort of suggesting is that if we look at the projected real interest rate, where the projected real interest rate is the sort of the two-stage least squares estimate of the interest rate facing each individual child in our sample, you see that this reduction in interest rates will increase the number of years of schooling that the individual child chooses to undertake. And this controls for state and year fixed effect, many individual characteristics, including 
the AFQT score of each individual kid, and including the education of the parents of the kids. Also notice that interest rate changes that occur at other points in this child's life okay, have no effect on schooling. So it's only the changes in credit constraints during the formative years of this person's life that we have this effect. The OLS regression in number one enters insignificant. And what this suggests is that it's very important to instrument for interest rates, um, that there can be things that work in the opposite direction. For example, you might have an economic boom that, that um, increases interest rates and also increases the demand for schooling. And therefore, you need a way of separating between those effects. And our proposed exogenous change in interest rates is one such mechanism. So in conclusion, credit constraints seem to matter. And from these preliminary analyses, banks and bank deregulation seem to affect the educational and hence economic opportunities available to uh, kids. Thanks. Sorry. I, I wasn't really even needed for keeping time. So. <laughs> um, all right. The first discussant is uh, Raquel Fernandez from NYU. Thanks. Okay, good. How does this uh, go? All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for inviting me to discuss this uh, paper. I've uh, seen a lot of papers, particularly of Yona in the past, uh, less of Ross's. It's nice to see seen one of their joint outputs, and this is the second one, and it's a pleasure to, to discuss it. Okay, so let me just try to summarize for you what their research agenda is. The question that they're after is, you see uh, differences across individuals and in how much education they get. Particularly see large differences across income groups, parental income groups. You want to ask yourself, is this due to preferences, ability, uh, differentials, which could include everything that they talked about, parental, peer, neighborhood effects, et cetera, or is it due to credit constraints? And the objective of this paper is to explore what the quantitative role of credit constraints might be in producing these schooling outcomes. Now, this is an important question. Uh, there's a huge literature, um, part of that literature, that assumes that these constraints are operative at various points in the life cycle of an individual and that these are central contributors to inequality. So trying to understand what role they play in a transparent fashion is, is very welcome. The main contribution of this paper would be to provide an instrument for loosening credit constraints. And as you were told, the main instrument, the, the proposal here is to look at U.S. intrastate bank deregulation. The argument is very straightforward. Exogenous bank reforms that increase competition among banks will loosen or lower credit constraints via lower interest rates or perhaps by uh, facilitating uh, greater access to loans. There's a little bit less discussion of that possibility. The main results are, are the following. Um, basically, high school dropouts by age 18, a decrease for low-income families, uh, when you use a data set that allows you to include ability, then we find that high school dropouts decrease only for low-ability individuals from low-income families. The years of schooling increase for everyone, more or less, by similar amounts. And college completion increases for all low-income individuals, regardless of ability. And also, there's some evidence that it increases for low-ability, high-income individuals. And I would say that's probably a fair summary of what the findings are. 
The theoretical framework is one in which you have, you know, costs and benefits from acquiring education. The benefits of acquiring of education is that you get, this is, I don't know if this is working, I have a feeling it's not. You get income, why? From schooling, which is then discounted. Uh, and it's discounted from time t to infinity because at time t, you're going to, at, at time t equals s, you're going to start working instead of being in school. Why do you want to go to school? It provides human capital for you, that's at h of s. Uh, and human capital uh, depends on your ability, that's the A. It depends on schooling. Schooling has some curvature, that's the square term on the S. And in the end, if you, you know, maximize the present discounted value of your, your income, you're going to get uh, an optimal amount of schooling, that's at SI star, which depends positively, I'm going to keep on trying this, positively on your ability, uh, on your taste for education, which is at beta, and negatively on the interest rate that you face. And so the way that they're conceptualizing credit constraints, and I'll say more about this later, is that different individuals might face different R's for a variety of reasons. Okay, so just a few comments on the theory. Uh, as, they, as the theory implies, as, as the authors uh, say, that individuals who have higher ability, take you back, individuals who have higher A's or who have higher thetas are going to go to school more. SI star is going to be higher. And individuals who face higher interest rates, that R is higher, are going to go to school less, are going to acquire less schooling. The individuals might want, the authors might want to note that the model also has another strong implication, which is that once you've decided upon your optimal amount of schooling, then if you face a decrease in the interest rate, for whatever reason, say deregulation, then the extra amount of schooling that individuals decide to get is independent of their tastes and independent of their abilities. So everybody should be increasing their schooling by the same amount. That's the view that the, the model takes of, uh, of uh, credit constraints. It, the model doesn't have quantity constraints, which is another way that the literature has often conceptualized credit constraints. That is, you go to the bank, you ask for a loan, and the bank says no. Okay. Uh, the latter can be thought of, however, as loans of extremely high interest rates, I th but I think this is something that the authors uh, should discuss uh, more fully. The model assumes that one can save at the same rate as one can borrow. That is, when you're facing a high R, that's also the R that you could save at. That's a little bit more problematic. That's definitely not true. Another way to think about imperfections in credit markets is in that... Uh, the difference between those two interest rates that you're facing, one for savings, one for borrowing, would it make a big difference? I think it would give you implications in the data that you could look at. Uh, I'm not sure that the NLSY would be an ideal set of data set, though, for this. It would give you implications for what you should see for savers versus borrowers that you might want to exploit. Okay. Um, all right, so um, the next set of comments are going to be on the IV strategy that is so central to, to the paper. What the authors establish, you know, this is supposed to be an instrument for credit constraints. And what the authors do is to do several things that you want to do to establish that this is a valid instrument. First, they want to show that actually their instrument, the number of years since interstate bank de deregulation, is actually negatively correlated significantly with mortgage interest rates, that the interest rate that they're looking at, including the state and year fixed effects. So that they do. They also established that the number of years since de deregulation is positively correlated with home ownership, which is another way of measuring maybe the importance of those uh, interest rates at that moment. And then they have some figures that are supposed to show that uh, neither interest rates nor educational attainment predicted the timing of back uh, deregulation, that is the causality 
is not the opposite. And that, I think, is less clear. I think they should show a bit more evidence on this. And we had a little bit of back and forth on this, but I think it'd be uh, nice to understand it more. There's still, uh, there's two main issues that I, that I would like to take up, though. Uh, another thing that, another uh, uh, property that you need for something to be a valid instrument is that it not be correlated with the error term. And in particular, what you don't want is that bank re uh, deregulation should affect, uh, could affect schooling through channels other than those related to credit constraints. If it does affect it, then it's not a proper instrument for thinking about credit constraints. The problem is that when you have bank deregulation and that lowers interest rates, they're going to affect firms' entry, investment, and employment decisions. These in themselves should influence education decisions because they're going to be affecting the benefits of education. So it's actually quite interesting, in fact, that as the authors acknowledge, prior research has shown that bank deregulation, in fact, this instrument, has been shown that uh, bank deregulation helped entrepreneurs start new businesses, it expanded the number of facilities of existing firms, it increased entry and exit, it increased startups. Bank deregulation lowered barriers to entry, especially in bank-dependent industries. And uh, the, paper, uh, the authors have a nice paper that show that it affected the black-white wage gap. So the point here is that when you lower interest rates, it doesn't just affect the marginal cost of acquiring schooling. It affects the marginal benefit of acquiring schooling because it is affecting the returns to your schooling. And what way? It's not clear. You know, did it make going to college more or less attractive? Did it make going to high school more or less attractive? But that's a big issue that the, uh, the, the authors are, are silent about. So it's, it's hard to believe that the marginal benefits were not effective. And that, that would kind of discredit it as an instrument for credit constraints. There's another point. We're talking about interest rates as though they're credit constraints. Note that if I decrease Let's take a perfectly functioning economy. No credit constraints for anyone. No quantity constraints, no interest rate differentials, say, between me and Ross. Everybody gets the same interest rate. If for whatever reason that interest rate goes down, okay, for whatever reason, you know, policies, uh, that interest rate goes down, both Ross and I should decide to acquire more education. This has nothing to do with credit constraints. It has to do with the marginal cost of waiting to get your uh, higher wages in the future. It makes education that much more profitable. So a lowering of interest rate in any economy basically should lead people to acquire more education. So the problem is that we can't interpret increases in schooling that follow a decrease in an interest rate as evidence of credit constraints. All we can do is say, yes, it made it more attractive to, it made the marginal cost of acquiring schooling to go down. This brings me to a more general point. It's really hard to understand what is meant by credit constraints. And that might be a bit of the source of the confusion here. I'm not going to try to provide you for an answer. I'm not really particularly interested. But you do really have to distinguish between a given interest rate at which all individuals are able to obtain loans. You might say that doesn't have credit constraints. Or it could be that there's a monopoly bank, and therefore there's imperfections. But it's not clear whether that's credit constraints or not versus interest rates or quantity constraints that operate only for some subgroups. If your interest is to explain why some income groups 
are able to do things that other income groups do less of. So why do high-income people get more education than low-income people? And you don't want to attribute it to preferences and ability. Then you need to be showing that there's these differences in interest rates, not just that a change in interest rates affect the amount of education. Because that it would do independently of the existence of credit constraints. So uh, following through a, a little bit more on this point, any policy conclusion that you would want to draw, if you did want to draw one from, uh, from the evidence that's presented in this paper, would be very sensitive to the specification of the exact mechanism that's causing the interest rates of the ability to borrow to differ across subgroups in the population. So more, a model of moral hazard, which is leading to interest rates to save being different from interest rates to borrow versus oligopolistic banks or versus scare funds for loans are all going to have different policy implications. So that said, of course, the authors are not trying to draw yet, uh, policy conclusions, but I think it should be noted from the outset. More general remarks on the IV strategy. If you note, the argument really is that deregulation changed the uh, competitiveness of banks. And there's some questions you can ask there. I mean, the authors stress what happened as of the 1970s. Yes, there's about 11 states that deregulate in 1960. So it's, it's not really clear that they're all following the same timing. But that, put, putting that aside, it's not really clear what the argument is for using years since bank deregulation, rather than, say, the 0-1 variable. Were you a deregulated state or were you not a deregulated state? The problem with using years since bank deregulation is, at least I worried whether the IV was picking up a state-level time trend in education. Okay. Now, if you don't want to use a binary variable because the effects of deregulation are dynamic, that is, it takes time for interest rates effect to trickle down to the rest of the economy, in particular to ed education decisions, then I wanted to know a little bit more about the data. What was the data saying about how long does it take deregulation to affect interest rates? How long does it take interest rates to affect education outcomes? In particular, I really wanted to see figures that showed how the main variables responded over time, before and after deregulation. And rather than having this linear uh, variable, I would have preferred to have seen some windows. So some, let's say, one to three years after deregulation, four to five years, five plus years, et cetera, and graphs of interest rates, education, et cetera. Um, OK. Um, I, uh, there's, um, <laughs> there was another discussion that we had, which is that there's this quadratic uh, term for the state type. There's uh, actually, let me get back to that. I, I, what I would encourage authors to do is to include a quadratic state time trend and various windows of years after deregulation in all, in all their regressions and to show that the results go through in any case. The, the remark I was thinking of right now was that one thing that the authors show is that years squared since deregulation is highly significant and positive. So it has the exactly opposite sign as just years since the deregulation, I would like to see it included in all specifications. And in particular, I wanted to know what is the quantitative impact of bank deregulation after, say, five years using this specification. What was my concern? My concern was that, at least when I looked at one or two of the table, it seemed that after 10 years, and the mean of the sample was 13 years here, uh, after 10 years, there was, uh, there was a negative impact sometimes. OK. Um, the next series of remarks are on the mechanism. Uh, so 
Let's think about what they're trying to uh, look at. They're looking at high school. One of the issues that they're looking at is high school completion. completion. And their model, and any of these models in which you have people, you know, uh, pursuing, uh, purchasing schooling, they're basically purchasing schooling until the marginal benefit of schooling is equal to the marginal cost of schooling, given their characteristics. Now, of course, in the United States, public high school education is free, and that's the overwhelming institutional choice for individuals in the United States. The vast, vast majority, 90% of people, do not go to private school. So then you ask, ask yourself, well, why is it that credit constraints matter for high school completion? And there's two answers that I think that one could give, but they're, they're rather different. One of them is that poorer individuals may need to work in order to smooth consumption. Uh, so lower interest rates allow smoothing to be less costly. Uh, are mortgage rates the right interest rate for those households? That's the interest rate that we're looking at. I'm worried that at the poorer part of that, this is, you know, poor here means really below the median, so it's not necessarily poor, but say 60, about 60% 60 of people in the United States own their houses, 60% of families. So the, you know, that 40% who don't own, I'm not sure how much movement there was. I'm not sure how much more owning of houses there was. So one thing of interest that you could do would be to divide your sample up into those who own uh, houses versus those who do not prior to deregulation and then see what happens. The other thing is that even though it's true that people go to public school, what happens, as, as uh, Ross was discussing, is that poor families live in neighborhoods with low quality public uh, schools. What lower interest rates might allow them to do is to move to higher school, uh, higher school quality neighborhoods. Now, do we actually see this? Maybe with the uh, NLSY, one thing that you can do is to look at people's moving decisions, since you have a, a panel data set. So in particular, we would be, like to know, do more people move to neighborhoods with better schools after deregulation? And I think it'd be just really nice to have evidence that, uh, that was more directly bearing on which channel was at work here. Um, that was for high school education. What about college education? Well, college education is costly, unlike high school for the most part. Um, can one obtain direct evidence on the channel? For example, looking, by looking at interest rates on student loans. Do we see interest rates on student loans go down? Now, if most student loans have a federal that is a national interest rate, then obviously state variation in those interest rates won't matter. But I wasn't really sure about all the particular components that go into financing uh, uh, going to college. So I think it would be very important to be more grounded in the educational uh, literature here and to actually look at some direct uh, evidence on this. Okay, two seconds of some general remarks. I guess I would encourage the authors throughout to provide a, a quantitative analysis. I found it very hard sometimes to figure out what the quantities were. Uh, that's in part me maybe, but in part it was uh, not having the marginals or other things, or not knowing what a standard deviation was of the, of the main variables. So by how many percentage points did high school dropout rate fall? I'd like to know by how much the college attendance increase, and by how much does the education gap across various subgroups get reduced. The quantitative effects seem very modest for high school. That might be my misreading of that 2 or 3 percent to being 2 or 3 percent for a 10-year period rather than a one-year period. So I may take that back. Um, there's uh, dramatic differences that one sees uh, about dropout rates for low ability, 27% for our low income families versus 11%. 
I was getting that this would change by two percentage points after 10 years. It might be 20, you're yeah. saying? It's 20. And then I would really worry about the linearity. Yeah, I yeah. Think but I, I, would like to, I would love to see the squared term in there. Uh, the college graduation rate effect seems to be more substantial. Okay. Uh, last uh, few comments, uh, general comments. I'd like to see less arbitrary and finer divisions uh, of the data of your main variables. Family income is divided into above and below medium. Why not at least use quintiles, given they have a fairly large data set? Ability is divided into below and above the 25th percentile. Uh, I think you gave a reason for this division, but again, I would have liked to have seen a finer division, maybe quintiles again. I'd also wanted to see how the AFQT scores differed by income group, so as to be able to gauge what's really going on. Um, you don't show the coefficients on controls such as family income, gender, ethnic group, parental education, single family indicator. I think it'd be very nice to see them. It'll help us think more about the mechanism. Uh, and sometimes I would actually like to see them actually with variables like family income interacted with the instruments to be able to think about oh, uh, more concretely about how this is operating. Sample size, blah, blah. So, yeah, a, a bit more on the empirical part. I am out of time. I'm going to, let me just conclude. I think this is a very interesting paper. I don't think it's an interesting paper on the issue of credit constraints and education. I think that what the authors have done instead is to provide evidence of how a presumably exogenous decrease in interest rates affects schooling outcomes across income and ability groups. I think that's very worthwhile in itself. I mean, it's interesting to understand if you have a fall in interest rates, it's going to stimulate your benefit side because it's going to stimulate firms, it's going to be a more competitive economy, and it's going to lower your, margin, your marginal cost. I think it's fine for both sides to operate. I'm just not sure what it says about credit constraints, and I don't think it has to. Um, I think that in, in the end, the overall contribution of the paper would be enhanced by having more evidence on mechanisms and a little bit more about the educational context in the United States in which these decisions are being made so that, it, so that we can uh, think more clearly about the mechanism. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, the second discussant is Erica Field from Duke University. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to discuss this paper. Um, I very much enjoyed reading it. Um, let me start by saying there is remarkable overlap between the uh, comments that I prepared and what uh, Raquel just presented. So unfortunately, I don't think I have a lot to add at this point, but I'll go through them nonetheless. Um, starting with, I'm going to skip the summary. You've now seen it twice. Um, and I think Raquel summarized it well, as did Ross, of course. Um, uh, let me point out a bit why I think this was an exciting paper to read and an important contribution. Um, I certainly think it's a first-order question. Um, as Ross pointed out, uh, there's a lot of work out there that presumes that credit constraints are very important for human capital accumulation. There's a lot of economic policy in developed and developing countries that's built around this assumption, but yet there's very little evidence. And I was uh, quite surprised by that um, when I read the paper, um, that there ha hasn't been more work kind of trying to document this relationship. Um, and I do think that um, the natural experiment that they utilize in order to uh, look for this causal association is, is pretty well, um, is a, a pretty convincing natural experiment in that I, I do uh, think they show enough evidence that uh, the timing of state-specific banking deregulation 
um, was exogenous to things that we might think would be predicting time trends in education. And so in that sense, I think it was, uh, they identified a very um, nice setting in which to test this important question. Um, and they, they utilized some nice, uh, rich sources of data that people have not brought to this question in the past. It was nice to see um, one of the few measures of ability that's out there for people to use, which is the AFQT test, um, and use that to, to test some more nuanced predictions about who should respond to uh, relaxation of credit constraints. Uh, the questions I had, uh, again, these are more or less all things that Raquel brought up, but I have a slightly different way of, uh, of stating them, perhaps. Uh, my, my main concern was uh, about the, the exclusion restriction. That is, how can we be sure that these effects are operating exclusively through changes in the cost of borrowing? Or is this, is, uh, are these, uh, is this paper really about credit constraints, as Ra Raquel put it? There certainly is a, there's a huge body of research on U.S. bank deregulation that has shown a whole host of other uh, macroeconomic effects and, and also microeconomic effects. Perhaps most notably, um, one of the first papers, maybe the first paper, um, and a more recent paper on banking deregulation showed big effects on, on economic growth, utilizing, I, I think, you know, a very similar um, econometric specification. Um, we also see effects on entrepreneurship, um, so the growth of small businesses and on economic volatility, um, and some evidence on the black-white wage gap, although I thought that might be just among bankers. Um, there are a lot of ways, if we just focus on the growth channel, in which economic growth of, uh, of a state or of a, of a county, particularly long periods of growth, um, could give rise to higher levels of, of, of schooling investment. In general, kind of transitory labor market shocks are likely to be countercyclical. So if we see um, you know, a short period of growth, that might actually cause people to, to drop out of high school. But long extended periods of growth are going to lead to changes in permanent income. And that um, certainly could stimulate people to invest more in human capital. Um, uh, it could also lead to, to changes in public spending on education. I, I think it's important here to keep in mind that these, the, the effects documented in the paper are quite lagged. And so we're looking at periods um, you know, very often of 10 years, in which case an economic boom or uh, economic growth in an area or a state um, could have all sorts of effects that contribute to people's decision to stay in school. Uh, so I think it's very hard to rule out these channels. I also don't think, um, I agree with Raquel, that it's not necessary. I think the paper is extremely interesting and important in that it documents what I think is a pretty um, clear causal association between banking deregulation and changes in human capital accumulation. I just uh, don't think it's, um, I think it's uh, a little naive to say that these are operating exclusively through changes in, in the interest rate, and therefore that the paper is documenting a strong relationship between credit constraints and, uh, and schooling decisions. So in that sense, I think they do a very good job of answering the first question that, that Ross brought up in his motivation. Is there, uh, are, are there these kind of unanticipated effects of banking deregulation? Uh, but not so much uh, uh, of, of answering the second question, which is, is, are credit constraints one of the primary uh, barriers to, to people investing in school? Um, on a related note, I, and this is also something Raquel brought up, I, I, I was curious throughout, and I think mainly this just wasn't well motivated, uh, why the specification assumes a gradual increase in, in schooling in years since deregulation. Um, is that because that's what happens to interest rates, that they gradually fall, and I could imagine that being the case, but I, I think the paper would, it would help a lot if you just documented that change. 
Um, I certainly would have anticipated some discontinuous um, change in the interest rates post-deregulation, even if they continued to drop thereafter. And I think, um, so first, I think it would be good to present a more flexible specification that uh, allowed uh, us to, to learn more about what that trend looks like. Um, I also think a discontinuity post-reform would be somewhat reassuring in, in terms of the question I brought up on the previous slide. Um, if education jumps very quickly in response to a change in you know, post-deregulation, I, I feel more convinced that it's about the interest rates than about broader um, changes to the, the economic environment. Um, the, the second uh, kind of concern I had was also what Raquel dwelled on in her presentation was uh, really about the high school dropout predictions. Um, I thought the, the college dropout predictions were more straightforward. Um, high school dropout is a more complicated um, prediction because, uh, mainly because, uh, so, so concretely their prediction was that low income, low ability high school students are going to respond to changes in the interest rates in terms of their decision to, to complete high school. And here I think the, the puzzle lies in the fact that uh, it kind of depends on what your model of the household is in the sense that high school students have no access to credit. So they, they're not potential borrowers, at, at, unless I'm completely off about the regulatory environment. I, I certainly I didn't think I could get a credit card when I was 16. Um, and so we're talking about very, in, and I do also believe that, um, that high school students are the sole decision makers in their decision to, to continue with high school. Um, and so we're, we're not in a setting in which, uh, I think by the time someone's at the margin of dropping out of high school, we're not in a unitary household in terms of um, deciding to invest in education. Um, so, so my question was kind of why, why would high school students' behavior be sensitive to changes in the cost of borrowing when none of them are potential borrowers? Um, my intuition, again, is that uh, kids are, are the sole decision makers regarding schooling, schooling investment. There's not a lot of transfers going on in these marginal households between from kids to parents or parents to kids in the sense that I don't think kids are dropping out of high school to support their families. And so uh, relaxing a credit, allowing parents to borrow would lessen the pressure on them. Um, and so I ju I, it just generally seemed unlikely that, that changes in the interest in, in credit availability or the interest rate uh, would influence this particular decision. In that case, uh, the only channel of potential influence that, that made sense to me was that the possibility of attending college, um, if kids had a certain amount of foresight, the possibility of attending college, um, given better college financing, could increase the return to high school completion and, and lead kids, um, again, if they had enough foresight uh, to complete college. Um, but if that's the story, you would need to see among the same subset of the population some effect on college entry. What, what the paper documents is actually no effect on college completion of that subgroup. And so that disconnect made it seem like, uh, seemed that this wasn't the channel. So the kind of the only remaining channel to me um, didn't bear out in the data. It might bear out if you looked at college entry. And so I would encourage them to see if they could find an effect on college entry among low income, low ability students. Um, I'm a little skeptical that you would find one, even though you might think it was mechanical. If, if kids are completing high school at a higher rate, they must be going to college at a higher rate. Uh, I'm not so sure that's true, though. I think there's a, a very nice recent um, experiment by Caroline Hogsby and others that really shows that kids in, in, in the low-income distribution, at least in kind of low-income parts of the country where most low-income households are concentrated, uh, are really not even at the margin of, uh, of being influenced in terms of how they apply to college, certainly not by subtle changes in the interest rate. Um, students aren't even considering applying to college. Um, so I would be somewhat surprised to find strong responsiveness of future interest rates to, to choices of high school kids who are, especially those at the margin of dropping out. And overall, this, um, uh, this disconnect makes me more suspicious that the effects are operating 
through bigger, the bigger picture economic growth. Um, my other comments um, are uh, kind of more technical about the empirical approach. Um, one set of results um, that I think Ross presented very quickly uh, utilized the current population survey data. Um, and uh, that gives very detailed information on, on household income. Uh, the problem with the CPS data is that it's a sample of households. And they utilize a sample of 18-year-olds and regress whether those 18-year-olds are still in high school on year since deregulation. Um, the problem with these data is that I, I think, unless I'm, I've, I have used the CPS, but it's been a long time, uh, is that I believe you only observe 18-year-olds who are living at home. And this, whether or not an 18-year-old is living at home is, is kind of intrinsically tied with whether or not they've chosen to drop out of school. Um, so by and large, it's a very strange sample. So it excludes dropouts who left home. And I would presume that, that a lot of dropouts actually do leave home. Um, it also means that the 18-year-olds that haven't dropped out, who are still in high school, living with their family, still might have the time, still could drop out. So they haven't completed high school for the most part. So it's, it's, just, it's kind of a, a funny sample on which to, to estimate this particular choice. Um, I, I think there are all sorts of possibilities, like suppose that they could, there are all sorts of uh, things related to banking deregulation that could change the composition of this particular strange subsample. If lower interest rates just made it easier for dropouts to leave their parents' house, suppose that, uh, uh, that um, rents fell because people get more mortgages and so the rental market prices fall, then you would see lower dropout rates just because you're seeing fewer 18-year-old dropouts living at home. Um, so this, this seemed just kind of fundamentally sloppy to me if I'm right about this particular subsample. I would leave alone. Um, if you can't observe people at this age, um, depending on whether or not they're living at home, I would not run a regression on them. Um, one way you could actually just evaluate whether or not this was a concern is to regress years since deregulation on the, the quantity of 18-year-olds in the sample. And that would tell you if, if there's this compositional change. Um, uh, most, of, most of the results in the paper don't rely on the CPS data, so I don't think it's, there's, there's any real need to, to keep them in there. Um, most of them utilize the uh, NSLY data. Um, for these specifications, so this data set is great. It's a panel data. They follow everyone. They track everyone. You don't have to worry about, I, I think, attrition is relatively low. It's certainly been analyzed in depth, and so we know a lot about, um, uh, about who stays in the panel. Um, my concerns with the NSLY specification um, was just that the, the, the panel specification seemed completely inappropriate, uh, particularly when the outcome was dropping out of high school. This is a decision you can make only once. Um, so any kind of outcomes post-dropout, if you drop out when you're 16, it's completely deterministic whether you're going to drop out when you're 18. And so this um, seemed like the wrong way to try to estimate this uh, association. A hazard model seemed like a much more appropriate way to kind of to model this behavior. At what point do people drop out? You could also just collapse the data on banking deregulation and somehow characterize the average interest rate during that period or the number of years, so if they're looking at the period between ages 14 and 17 when kids are in high school, what fraction of that period are banks deregulated? Um, that would be, I think, a simple way of summarizing and then run a regression where you have one uh, observation per individual. They, they do cluster their standard errors on, on individual as um, is, is very fundamental if you're duplicating the, the data this much. Uh, but I still think it's just a, a much more straightforward way to, to estimate this relationship. And also, there's no time invariant characteristics that are really included um, from the NSLY, so you, I don't think you really buy much from that. Um, uh, another um, 
question I had when I was reading the paper is, um, how much of the effects uh, are they interpreting as operating through changes in the extensive margin of credit access? That is, people suddenly having access to loans where they, when they didn't before, or credit cards, um, or student loans, versus these changes in the interest rate. And my intuition was that um, it's hard for me to believe that households are very sensitive to small changes in the interest rates for decisions um, as fundamental as completing high school or college entry or completing college. Uh, but I, I do believe that changes in the extensive margin could be quite important um, among populations that um, have very low savings rates. Um, so I thought it was just important, first of all, to show very carefully that we do have a fundamental change in, in access to credit um, at the extensive margin, uh, not just changes in the interest rate. The paper looks at the volume of mortgages as a way of documenting this, uh, that the, the quantity of borrowing goes up. This is not exactly the same. What, what I wanted to see is that you know, conditional on demanding a loan, you're more likely to get it. Um, there are other papers on the banking deregulation um, certainly said that the competition, sorry, um, the increased competition of banks made it easier for some people uh, to get credit who wouldn't have otherwise, and so we should see that um, to some extent. Um, but just, so the volume of mortgages, because I assume that demand also increased quite a bit, I don't think completely answers this question. Um, and again, the paper, uh, the authors claim that they do have data on all mortgage applications and all mortgages that were actually, um, uh, uh, and mortgage outcomes. And so you could easily document a change in the likelihood conditional on applying. Um, just uh, other miscellaneous thoughts I had. Um, in general, I didn't, I, I was, I was surprised by the focus on degree completion and not the decision to enter or apply. It just seemed like, um, not the former, sorry, it seemed like the latter would be much more sensitive to loan availability and price. Once you've started college, I imagine you're less sensitive. Uh, the decision to complete seems um, less sensitive than the decision to even start college or apply to college. Um, and I, I can, it seems like you must have that outcome as easily as you have the completion. I also didn't understand the motivation for excluding um, people with GEDs as, as high, and not counting them as high school graduates, um, especially if, if my interpretation is correct that uh, the reason that you decide to complete high school is because you realize it's going to be easier to go to college, then GED would be the exact same prediction. It should be influenced exactly the same. The cost, you know, get high school, there are no um, outright expenses with respect to high school and likewise with the GED, so I, I, I didn't um, see why you excluded them. This is just a clarifying point that I should have probably brought up with you offline, but I did, there was a, a, a point in the paper that um, uh, by conditioning on age, um, you guaranteed that the AFQT scores were not influenced by school attendance, and that's probably something I just don't understand about when AFQT scores are, are administered, um, but I thought that could certainly be better explained. Um, uh, another thought I had was why not include the household fixed effects as a check on your ability results? Um, this would rule out a whole host of possible reasons for the patterns you observe, such as you know, unobservables that households with high ability kids also have um, more credit worthy, worthy parents. And so it's not really about the fact that they treat high ability kids differently, but the fact that they just uh, unobservably have more access to credit. And with the NSLY, you can you could do things like that. And then my last general thought was uh, in, in the basic specification, um, and I think you know, maybe this was the attempt to try to pinpoint the channel, but um, the way I was trained, this is just sloppy. I don't think you should include all of these things that were presumably directly affected by um, banking deregulation as right-hand side variables. Um, 
So for the panel re regressions, I would only include county level observables before deregulation, deregulation, deregulation something like the unemployment rate, um, and not things that could be directly influenced. Um, that's the end of my comments. Okay. Uh, do you want to take, Yona, uh, you want to take a few minutes to respond uh, to some of the speakers? Okay. Uh, I enjoyed very much. Uh, the discussion, maybe less than you enjoy reading the paper, but uh, still enjoy that. I will not go over all the details, and uh, maybe I should focus on uh, perhaps the main issue, which is uh, to what extent, uh, indeed, the banking deregulation uh, provides uh, a, a, a kind of, I will say, fair instrument uh, in the and actually fits uh, the exclusion restrictions, okay? Or uh, to what extent it shifts only the supply or the cost of education without changing the demand for educated labor. Uh, this is not an uh, easy point to address. However, uh, what uh, we have in mind is, and the strategy here, builds on the following insight, that the credit market, at least for the families, is very localized, okay? However, the US, and I'm not an American, but uh, from observing you, is very mobile in terms of the labor opportunities, especially at the college level. So I will say, again, the credit market and the relevant credit market might be very localized, while the demand for education, especially at the highest levels, and the price for that, I don't think it's too much of a local effect. So I don't think that you decide to go to college or not, whether there is a work for college graduates in Idaho, okay? But if your family lives in Idaho and uh, you cannot get uh, credit uh, to finance your college or your uh, previous levels of education, it might affect your college decisions. So in principle here, a way to tackle that is to say, look, uh, the demand for education, at least at the higher levels, is more global and is less likely to be a uh, affected from uh, the local conditions. Okay. Now, a different way to address that, and we should do that, is the following. If what, what we mainly pick is a shift in the demand for education, should be reflected in prices, correct? If we think about the markets as local markets for high education workers, and Raquel and Erica are correct with respect to their concern. And I'm not saying a concern that you always can raise. as a first order concern. If their alternative model is the right model, we should see that actually if it's a shift in the demand for educated workers, we should see an increase in the returns to education in these places. Now I don't know the result, okay? Therefore I raise it here. Let's check it. This can help distinguish between our interpretation of the data and your interpretation of the data. We predict a drop 
in the returns to education if something in these local markets, if it is a supply shift in the cost of education. And the alternative explanation predicts actually increase in the returns to education in these local markets. So this worth doing, okay? It's a, and I don't know the answer, okay? Another way to address the issue of uh, to what extent actually you pick local demand, not only for labor, especially for educated labor, correct? Is uh, uh, to differentiate between families that are more likely to be constrained and families that are less likely to be constrained. Right? If it comes from the demand side to education, it should affect both sides, correct? Each one faces a different margin, a different marginal cost, but in each type of family, kids from different type of families actually equalizing marginal cost with marginal benefits at different margins. But it was a general shift in the demand for education. We should see both of them doing more. My impression is that our results show that there was almost no change at all in the college graduation of high ability guys coming from high income families, okay? Uh, but again, this is a concern, and I think that uh, while listening to your comments, it's, I think that the, the price uh, dimension can uh, help distinguishing between uh, these two different channels. If it's a primarily, it's, if, if the main effect is a demand effect for more educated workers, and we take the approach of a local labor market approach, then you should see it reflected in the prices, okay? higher prices for education, meaning higher rate of returns to education. And if it is what uh, uh, our interpretation of uh, the data, we should see if something uh, uh, lower uh, returns to education. Uh, and I think that this is the main point. We agree, or there is a general agreement, that in terms of measuring the reduced form effect of deregulation on schooling, the more or less the results are quite uh, robust, okay? So, uh, the rest, uh, I'm, I will stop here, not to say that the other comments are not uh, 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 good uh, uh, comments and uh, definitely worth uh, uh, thinking about them more carefully, but I think this is the issue that has to be tackled uh, as a first order issue. I will repeat myself by saying that the view here is that the market for high education workers or educated workers is a more global market in the U.S., can be even a regional market in the U.S. However, the credit market okay, for families is more localized. Okay? And the testable implication are the prices. Okay? And this will be the verdict, whether we capture demand side effects or mainly supply side effects. Okay. Um, all right, so we have 10 minutes or so for uh, questions. And again, please wait for the microphone to arrive and try to re remember to say your name uh, and affiliation, which I think I didn't do when I asked a question last time. <laughs> uh, so uh, go ahead. Uh, Jim Butkowitz from the University of Delaware. In, in terms of credit constraints, um, there's also credit rationing effects. And if my memory is accurate, in 1977, uh, the federal government passed the Community Reinvestment Act, 
which supposedly reduced credit rationing uh, to low-income neighborhoods, particularly mortgage loans. Uh, so my question is, are, are, you, are you sure your results are robust to, to this change? What I would ask is maybe instead of starting your sample in 79, maybe go to like 83 or 84 when the CRA would have already been worked in and see if you still get the same results because the increased access to credit, mortgage credit to low-income households may be the result of the CRA as much as any state deregulation. Uh, thank you. So the as long as the CRA was not implemented differentially across states in exactly the same years in which those states deregulated their interstate banking by including year fixed effects, um, we won't capture that. Bob Hall, Stanford. Um, all right, so so let's pursue this question of whether what's being picked up here uh, is an interest rate effect or something else. Under the something else hypothesis, which I'm afraid I join, um, then you would you would expect that because in a instrumental variables uh, estimation you're basically looking at that part of a variable on the right hand side that is uh, correlated with the instrument as opposed to the entire movement of it, uh, and yet the instrument is, then also has an effect on the left-hand variable and the IV estimate is the ratio of the two. Um, what would happen uh, under, the, under the hypothesis that it isn't operating through interest rates is that you'd get a very large interest rate coefficient. It would be, it would be picking up uh, inappropriately uh, all the effects that were operating through other channels. Um, and reading the paper, we're not given that much of an indication. I mean, there is a model stated at the beginning that would enable us to determine whether the interest rate effect was was about the right magnitude, but I'm, I'm not sure it's tied up, at least it wasn't in the presentation. So uh, all that it says actually in the paper is that it's very large, which makes me suspicious. Um, uh, so, so we need to, to kind of pull that together, it seems to me. I would say that the interest rate is an unlikely channel uh, for uh, measuring anything that, that is related to credit rationing or, or credit constraints. That point's been emphasized by quite a few people. Um, uh, after all, you can't borrow against uh, human capital. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and that's a very fundamental restriction of the, of, uh, and that, of course that's why we have federal student loans uh, which in which you do borrow against your human capital because for the rest of your life, as I pointed out before, you're on the hook to the federal government. Uh, and it was done for a reason. Uh, so that it seems to me the interest rate channel is an unlikely one uh, and that it would be better to package this as saying there are things that happen uh, that are correlated with, um, uh, with de bank deregulation that uh, are also having a favorable effect on on uh, uh, on continuing education, as opposed to, especially using the word credit constraint. I don't see how a, uh, anything having to do with the level of an interest rate really conveys much about a credit constraint. At least the theory of credit rationing that I'm familiar with uh, doesn't wouldn't teach you to do it this way. He's gonna... okay. You respond. Uh, 
With respect to the coefficient, I don't want to push it too much, but if you look at the model, it's basically the coefficient should be one over gamma, and gamma is the diminishing returns to uh, schooling in the production function of human capital, okay? So in some sense, if you take the motor, model literally, it's the, our estimates are in some sense too small to what the model predicts, okay? Because gamma is a small number, so basically the, the, the structural interpretation is one over gamma, okay? So, correct, if you, if you go... Sorry, one over gamma is a big number then. So that's what I'm saying, you say that, you say minus three looks, seems to be a too big number. I'm saying minus three might be a small number because gamma is a small number and one over gamma will be even bigger than minus three, okay? So, so I would say, from the perspective of the model, the numbers are okay, okay? I would say this way, okay? You're absolutely right that it's not clear, and here I want to clarify. There is a lot of important work done by Jim Heckman about, I would say it's credit constraints by the model or the cost of capital, okay? Or the cost of borrowing against your future income via your education. Theoretically, no doubt that it's important. Question empirically is whether this is the effective constraints when people make the choices about schooling. Okay? And a very important line of work by Jim Heckman argues that this is not the effective constraint, or not the main order effective constraint when people make choices, especially at the college level. Okay? Now let me go back to your point okay, and generalize it. Might be very well the case that we capture the effect of interest rates on home environments and via home environments on the ability of people to learn and benefit from schooling and then make choices, okay? And this goes back to Erica's points about the puzzle why it affects high school dropouts, okay? May affect high school dropouts by affecting the quality of home environments and the quality of home environments will affect high school dropouts even without any issues with, with respect to whether these guys will go, in, expect to go to college in the future or not. I think we are not this paper, it will be very hard to argue that we can separate between the direct and the indirect channel, okay? Uh, but going back to your comment, whether number minus three is a reasonable number, if I take the model literally, I, should, I would expect you to say it's a too small number, okay, in some sense. Cliff Winston, uh, Ross began his presentation by pointing out he's a finance economist and co-authors of labor economists, and I take it the two of you are like human capital experts. I interpret this as a paper about deregulation, and I'm a regulatory economist. Uh, and let, let me, and I think though thinking about it from a regulatory perspective is helpful, because my just broad intuition about what you're saying is that it's very consistent with how deregulation has worked in every other industry. And I can't help you with your identification, but uh, I think there's an awful lot of circumstantial evidence that you could actually draw upon to sort of talk about you know, how, how deregulation works. So let me just say a few things. One, you, just, you, know, you didn't talk much about deregulation, but the channel and the mechanism about you know, how, how it all works. You start with the firms. You have these firms in this regulatory environment, a bequeathed regulatory environment. They're used to sort of doing things in this world where for the most part, they don't know their customers. Uh, they treat them all the same. There's, you know, sort of very programmed interaction with them. Prices are set, they're restricted, and so on and so forth. And, you know, that's the way they've been doing business for a long time. Deregulation comes along, and the timing of it's very subtle. 
on how it's going to work. Because it starts with the firms who've got to sort of shed their bequeathed regulatory operations. Consumers aren't at all used to dealing with firms at this level. I mean, people did not immediately rush out and get deregulated airline fares. Uh, and just as examples, we are still observing firms adjusting to deregulation today, uh, even though it happened, you know, 30, 40 years ago. All right. So you know, there's a lot of sluggishness in all this and trying to actually pick up where deregulation is having its effects through your various time frames is very difficult. It's not a very smooth process. But you know, there, one th there are a couple of things that we do know about results about deregulation. One is heterogeneity. One of the huge benefits of deregulation is that the firms now responded to a much broader set of customers and were responsive to preference heterogeneity. So when I hear results saying that bank deregulation led to benefits for low-income consumers, you know, I immediately think, yeah, airline deregulation helped low-income travelers and get them out of buses. Now, bus deregulation is leading them to come back and try to get those people back into buses. Trucking deregulation helped shippers, small shippers. You know, all the way down the line, you, know, you just see competition evolving in such a way that a much broader spectrum of the population is benefiting from this, and it's because then the consumers and the firms got together. Now, exactly how this worked in your case, you, know, you don't describe, but I can imagine there were mechanisms by which this happened. At the same time, there are constraints. You know, deregulation didn't work smoothly because there's lots of things that got in the way of the performance of firms, whether it be public infrastructure or whatever, you know, that prevented you know, smooth benefits. And so the kind of self-selection criticisms that were being made that certainly would work ordinarily, but perhaps in this market, you're not going to be able to self-select to kind of get the benefits uh, that, you, that you think you could get. And your basic point that there's sort of more subtle and broader effects of deregulation, you know, we've seen that now in, in other places. And people don't think that airline deregulation had a huge effect on international trade, but now there are papers coming out that are arguing just that by facilitating more communication, international travel, and more face-to-face -face contact that's improving in trade. You know, no one thought trucking deregulation should be responsible for transforming the auto industry in this country, but it was. And the way it did is it made it attractive now for the transplants to locate where they did because they could get very cheap trucking rates for interstate movements. So all I'm saying is you know, if you step back and just think about how broadly deregulation worked, I think you're gonna see a lot of parallels between the general story you want to tell, and it may be able to give you at least some circumstantial evidence that will strengthen what you're doing, even though, as I said, I can't help you with your specific identification problems. Other, other questions? Yes. Uh, well, I saw you first, so if I <laughs> wait. Um. Okay. Um. Uh, I'm Chad Sparber from Colgate University. Um, and um, I was a little confused about your measure on the years since uh, deregulation um, because it treats deregulation sort of as a singular event that, that happens once um, uh, that's related to the deregulation of uh, geographic restrictions. Um, but I often think about deregulation as something that happens um, as a process over time. Um, and so I'm wondering if, if this geographic deregulation is, is really so easy to identify um, as a singular date um, and whether it's possibly correlated with other state level um, regulations. Uh, and then finally, if there's 
um, any problem with sort of interplay with federal level uh, deregulations, meaning that if, if federal deregulations are happening before uh, a few states decide to act their own, do, do those states continue to get zeros or, or do they start counting from, from the date of the federal level changes? So <clears throat> there's, there were two categories of bank deregulations, the interstate and the intrastate. So the interstate deregulation um, takes place, the interstate deregulation is very complicated. So the literature up until a recent, the literature up until a recent paper by myself and Martin Goetz and Luke Lavin has treated interstate deregulation as if it took place in one year for each state, zero and one afterwards. That's not the case. For interstate deregulation, each state essentially was signing a series of bilateral and multilateral agreements over a course of years with another set of states. So not only was the first year of each state oftentimes different for every state, but the entire dynamic process is different as different states were signing these agreements. So there's tremendous heterogeneity potentially for examining interstate deregulation. Um, in this particular paper, what we do for interstate deregulation is we simply use, do the convention of saying when they first start the first year of interstate deregulation, the next year is year one after deregulation two, three, four. And so one can do this now using this complicated um, process of deregulation. Now we find for the interstate that there's really not much of an effect and so we actually use that as a placebo test in the paper and focus most of the analysis on intrastate. Intrastate doesn't have that problem. Intrastate, I think, is, can be reasonably characterized as the state deregulates in a particular year. That year, and then from then, from then for the next year is one in our, the way we code it, one, two, three, and, and, and four. Um, I, um, and I think that, that that's reasonable. I think as, as, as Erica and Raquel brought out, um, we can do more to be explicit and do more robustness tests on the dynamics and they raise good questions about should it be years since or should it be a zero one? And, and I think we should experiment with, with, with that in the future versions of the paper. Okay, uh, sorry, I think we're out of time, but we can continue discussion afterwards.